Eight years ago, I lost my best friend in a car accident. Hurt like crazy, but it didn't hurt me half as much as it hurt his wife and the three little children he had who were under five. But there's great comfort in the Bible for people who lose loved ones in death, and today we're going to look at that. I hope it brings you comfort. I know it will challenge you, but that's okay. And I just pray that you'll walk away from this program having been brought closer to the love of Jesus and with hope for life after death. God bless you. Welcome to our worship program this morning. Know the Lord will bless you as we open his word and learn more about what he has to tell us about our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we now pray that this morning that your presence will bless us that you'll draw us closer to you. And as we look at this very challenging subject, this teaching, that you'll be here, that you'll be in our hearts and in our minds, and that you'll be teaching and leading us. So this subject will be clear and easier for us to accept. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing our prayer again in your name. Amen. I had the privilege of working in New Zealand between the years of 1997 and 2000. And I must tell you that some of the best friends I've ever had are Kiwis. I remember one particular family who lived down in Tarong in New Zealand one particular night. It was really, uh, I think it was around the middle of winter. I got a phone call at 11 or 12 o'clock in the night. And when you're a pastor and you get a late night phone call, it usually means trouble. And so bleary-eyed, I picked it up. It was my friend from Taronga's brother. And he said, Lloyd, i got terrible news. He said, this afternoon, my brother, your friend, was on his way home from work. He was in his car and he was out passing somebody. He, he was, to be fair, a, a fairly wild driver. And he was out passing somebody. We don't know what happened. But he had a head on with a car coming the other way. And I heard his voice as it began to break. And he said, my brother, your friend, he's dead. I can still remember the shock, the horror and the trauma of that moment. And I can still remember I was asked to do the funeral. As I said, we were best friends. Going down to Tauranga and meeting with his wife. He had three children under five years of age. Remember the tears streaming down the wife's face. What do you say? What comfort can you give her? And she told me the story. She said he was on his way home from work Friday afternoon. Sabbath was almost here. We were waiting for him. She said he was late, so I turned the radio on. He said in the, she said in the road announcement, I heard the news that there'd been a fatal accident and she said immediately I, I knew, she said I knew it was my husband. And she said I got my father and, and we got into the car and we rushed out to the accident scene. And she said when I got to the accident, we got caught in a traffic jam. She said I, I stopped the car, I got out and I ran. And she said I ran, I ran to the accident. She got to the police. She didn't know what was happening but she had this instinct. She said I got to the police and she said it's my husband, it's my husband. And the policeman said, how can you know? We haven't identified this man. She said, it's my husband, let me through. You know, the policemen, they get traumatised at these accidents too. And he let her through and sure enough, it was her husband. And I remember going to the funeral parlour with the brother. It was a very sobering moment to walk in there. And see this young man with three children, under five years of age, and a beautiful young wife, and to see him lying in that casket, dead. One of those things as a minister, 
that I will never forget. And as we went through that funeral service, and the days and the weeks and the months after the funeral, I know that the only thing that sustained that young wife, that young woman with three children under five, I know the only thing that sustained her through that difficult time was the truth of what God has to say happens to you after you die, the truth that he put in the Bible there for you and me to read. And this morning for a few moments I want to share with you again in this church the truth of what God says happens to you after you die. In fact I want to challenge you this morning. Who will you believe? Will you believe what the devil and darkness says about death or will you believe what God and the Bible has to say? And I suppose without further ado we need to look at what the Bible does have to say. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3. We go right back, right, right, right back to the creation of the world. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, the Bible says, and this is a true story, this is how it happened. This is what God claims is the truth about death. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, we're in the garden, the garden of Eden that God created. Beautiful place, I was, I was having worship with my children the other night. Yes, in our home we have worship morning and evenings. I take my children with my wife to the throne of God in the morning and I take them to the throne of God in the evening. It's a powerful experience. And we're having worship and we're going through one of those Bible story books and and it's talking about the Garden of Eden. What a beautiful place it must have been. A a garden in a perfect world that God had put there for for Adam and Eve, the first two people he ever creates. And and there were forces in the universe, both evil and light, back that far and we believe that that the world was created probably somewhere around 6,000 years ago. It is not a world that is millions and millions of years old. There's a lot of nonsense A lot of nonsense by people who don't believe in the word and what God has to say about the creation account. And so here we are at creation. Adam and Eve, our first parents, have been put in the garden and this is what the Bible says. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Now... As we were looking at this story in worship the other day, with my five and my eight-year-old daughters, I looked down at my five-year-old and I said, Eve should have known that the serpent was not just an ordinary animal. She should have known that something was going on here. Something was amiss. I said to my little girl, Danae, I said, Danae, why should Eve have known that the serpent was no ordinary snake? I had to read the verse again to them. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, I said, Hannah, Danae, what is wrong? And Danae, my five-year-old, looks up at me with her innocent little eyes and she said, Daddy, snakes don't talk. Bingo, you are right, little girl. This snake was talking and even back in the garden, snakes did not talk. The devil had chosen the most beautiful of all the creatures. There was no more beautiful creature in all God's wonderful creation than the serpent. 
And Satan had chosen this beautiful creature to come to Eve. And I want to tell you today that Satan is still choosing beautiful things to tempt us. Yes, he is. Temptation doesn't come packaged ugly. Temptation usually comes as something to be desired. And this is how the devil came to Eve and he begins to talk to her. Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? You see, there was a test. A simple tree. God said you can eat of any other tree in all of the Garden of Eden. But do not eat of this tree. It is a test of your loyalty and your obedience to me. Adam understood it. Eve understood it. And here's Eve. Seems she's by herself because there's no mention of Adam. And the serpent begins to talk to her. She should never have talked back. Never, ever talk with the devil. You begin to talk with him, he's too smart, he's too wise for you, he'll always get you. And she begins to talk. And she, she begins to sermonise, to theologise with, with the serpent, with the snake that shouldn't have been able to talk. The woman said to the serpent, verse 2, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but verse 3, God said, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Look at this, look at this, and you must not touch it, or you will look at it. Look at what the Bible says, or you will die. God said, Adam, he said, Eve, this is a test. You eat from that tree, you better believe me today, you are going to die. Now, Adam and Eve didn't really know what death was, but they had the concept that it was something terrible. And here's Eve relating the truth to that demon serpent. Do not fool with the devil. Do not talk to him. Do not look at him. Do not let him have any influence in your life. He's someone you want to stay well far away from. Now look what the serpent says. God said you touch it, you eat it, you'll die. Get that point one. God said you will die. Listen to what the serpent says. Verse 4. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Lie couched in truth. If they were to eat the fruit... And fail the test, simple as it may seem, they would for the first time in their life know the difference between good and evil, if they ate the fruit. But God said, you eat the fruit, you will die. The devil says, eat the fruit, you'll know the difference between good and evil, you will not die. Who are you going to believe? God said, you eat the fruit, you sin, you die. The devil said... You eat the fruit, you sin, you'll know the difference between good and evil, you will not die. Who are you going to believe? God says, sin, you die. The devil says, sin, you don't die. Who are you going to believe? Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, it always is, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realised they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And they began to die. And ever since that time, mankind has been dying. There's one thing I can guarantee you this morning. I can't guarantee your wealth. I can't guarantee your success. I can't guarantee your happiness. I guess there's two things I can guarantee you. The first one is that you will be taxed. The second one is... You hear long enough, you will die. You may die short, you may die long, you will die. 
That's the one thing we can guarantee, we will all die. And often as a pastor, I've sat in hospital rooms, I've watched people dying. I've gone to funerals and I've let out in funerals as people have been, been farewelled by their loved ones. And I've often thought to myself, as a casket, and it's usually put right here on the, uh, on the platform of the church, here it sits, and I've often looked there, well, Lloyd, there you'll be one day, and that'll be sooner than you think. As surely as Christmas is coming, oh, it seems a long way away. But it is coming. I'm already looking forward to it. As surely as Christmas is coming, so too is your death. And sooner or later you're going to face it just like everybody else who has ever lived has. So it's important that you establish in your mind who are you going to believe on the issue of death. Are you going to believe God who says if you sin you die? Now the Bible says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. We've all sinned. The Bible says we're going to die. The devil says and he's still telling the same lie. He says you sin you won't die. You're going to live forever. Your soul will float on up to heaven or whatever. God says you die, the devil says you'll live. Who are you going to believe? I want to show you something in the Bible, in Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon. This is a book that many theologians and, and many pastors and, and many religious leaders feel uncomfortable with, and for good reason. Because nowhere in the Bible is it clearer on what happens to you after you die than Ecclesiastes. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 5. For the living know that they will die. Every one of you here today knows you will die. Every one of you watching this on television knows you're going to die. The Bible says that. For the living know they will die. But the dead know nothing. That's what the Bible says. They have no further reward. And even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hatred, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they be a part of anything that happens under the sun. The Bible says... The dead know nothing. God says you sin, we're all sinners, we die. And when we die, the Bible, Bible clearly, clearly says we know nothing. Nothing. Now look what the Bible says further. Same chapter, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the grave where you are going, there is neither working, planning, knowledge or wisdom. You want to know something? I don't believe you can get any clearer guidance into the truth of what happens to you than from those three verses. Why is it that the world is so obsessed with the idea that when you die, there's got to be something afterwards? There's got to be some sort of consciousness. You know, there's many people who believe in reincarnation. Well, if you're going to follow the Bible, that's nonsense. Because the Bible says the dead know nothing. If I'm reincarnated into another human being, I know everything. Many Christians, Christians, who believe that when you die you go to heaven. Perhaps if if you're bad you go to hell, God forbid. Or you might go to an in-between place called purgatory. Show that to me in the Bible. I'm challenging you. Show that to me in the Bible. It's not there. I know this is very confronting. But it's not there. The Bible says the dead know nothing. When you die, there is nothing. Oh, that's challenging, but praise God, it's not the end. Look, come with me to John chapter 11 for a moment. Let's go down this Christian road, what many Christian people, teachers, pastors and churches are saying, that when you die, you go to be with the Lord. Well, I'm not so sure. 
Have a look at what you think about this. John chapter 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. This is when Jesus was on the earth. This man Lazarus happens to be a friend of Jesus. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Again, friends of Jesus. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. The good story between Jesus and Mary and how Jesus came down and saved her life. And she was grateful. You ought to read that story sometime. So Jesus, verse 3, so the sisters, verse 3, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Great thing about Jesus is that wherever he was, he was healing sick people. Mary, Martha knew that. Lazarus was deadly sick. He was in fact dying. And they knew that if they could get Jesus there in time, he would heal Lazarus and Lazarus would live. Fair enough desire. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he said, and we're looking at verse 4, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Verse 5 says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Didn't make sense. Lazarus is sick. He needs Jesus' help. He needs to come immediately. The servant comes to Jesus. He's urgent. He says, Jesus, quickly, come, come. Your friend Lazarus is sick. Only you can save him. He is dying, Lord Jesus. But Jesus stays where he is for another two days. Look what happens here. Finally, after two days, Jesus says, let's go back to Judea. And the disciples tried to tell Jesus not to go back there because some enemies of Jesus had been trying to stone him in this place. Verse 11. Two days, Jesus is there. Finally, he says in verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going back to wake him up. Verse 12, his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death. Look, Jesus calls death sleep. Verse 13, the Bible tells us Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So Jesus goes back to where Lazarus was. Now, Lazarus had died. Tragedy. Mary and Martha are in tears. Jesus goes back there. He sympathises with them. He grieves with them. I find this very interesting. And then he says, take me to the graveside. Now, if, if, if you're going to follow along the normal Christian view that after you die you go back to heaven, you're simply going to say, well, what a great thing. It's not so bad to die. Lazarus has already gone back to heaven. But Jesus said he was asleep. He says, I'm going to wake him up. And so Jesus, Jesus goes back. Verse 38, he goes to the tomb and the Bible says he was deeply moved. It was a cave where Lazarus was buried and a stone was laid across the entrance. Jesus said, take away the stone. This man is dead. According to what we're being taught in most Christian churches today, not only is he dead, but he's gone back to heaven. Praise God. What is Jesus doing? He gets them to take away the stone from the gravesite. And then Jesus says in verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of everyone standing here, that they may believe you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Oh, God forbid! I'm in heaven, Lord! I don't want to go back down there to a life of sickness and hardship. Leave me alone. Doesn't make sense. He's in heaven. If he's in heaven, what does he want to, what does he want to come back down here for? But he wasn't. Jesus said he was asleep. 
Mary and Martha knew that he was dead and asleep. His disciples knew he was dead and he, when he was asleep. And when Jesus said, come forth, he was calling Lazarus forth from the grave from his sleep. He wasn't in heaven, he wasn't in hell, he wasn't in purgatory. He was asleep and it was a good thing that Jesus came and woke him up because Jesus brought him back to life. To life. He brought him from a place where he knew nothing back to life. Glorious, wonderful mi- miracle. A miracle that, that if you, you were to believe what many Christian churches teach you today was foolishness. Lazarus in heaven brought back here? I don't think so. I, I want to close by reading two texts to you. New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Remember the Bible says that when you die... You sleep. You're in a state of unconsciousness. You know nothing. Look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. This is talking about the second coming of Jesus. Listen, says Paul, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. In other words, we will not all die. But we will all be changed. Some of us will be alive when Jesus returns. Not all of us will die. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, that's the second coming, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. What are they doing being raised if they're already in heaven? They're not. They're in their graves. They're asleep, waiting for the call of Jesus. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, verse 55, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? See, it's when Jesus returns that he will conquer death. And his voice will go out across the earth and the dead who die loving Jesus Christ with his blood covering their sins will be raised to eternity. One more text. Listen to this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 16 to 18. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They're not in heaven, they're in the grave. The second coming, they will be raised. After that, we who are still alive, that will be some of us and our left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with those words. Who are you going to believe? Jesus says, when you sin, you die. You sleep. But because he died on the cross and his blood covers sin, if you surrender to him, after a sleep of some time, when he chooses to return to earth, you'll be woken up. That's what Jesus said. The devil says that when you die, you go on in consciousness for eternity. I believe the Bible. As challenging as it is, I believe the Bible. Who do you believe? Lord Jesus, thank you for being with us this morning. Bless us now as we go our way and help us to come to grips with this very challenging, exciting subject in your name. Amen. I love Jesus, love him so much. And one of the reasons I love him is because he gives me hope for life after death. And I know that I can go out today, I may die, that's okay. There's hope for a future. And I pray that as you have watched this program, that you too have hope in Jesus. He is the only way out. Take him, invite him into your heart and let him make a difference in your life today. God bless. Thank you.